Welcome to the inaugural episode of the 10 Tabs Open podcast. This is Alex Howell, and today our guest was Bob Kendrick of the Negro League Baseball Museum. He's the president of that organization, which is located right here in Kansas City, Missouri, and they are located in the historic 18th and Vine District. Uh, Bob came on, shared some amazing stories of the players, of his organization, and I cannot wait for every single person who's listening to this podcast to hear it all. But I do have to confess, uh, this being the first episode, we uh, had to, of course, experience some technical difficulties, and that technical difficulty was that I had forgotten, because of the technology that I'm dealing with, to turn Bob's mic on for the first about 90 seconds of our conversation. So, Bob, I am so sorry about that, but um, I was able to catch that, turn it back on, thank God and uh, we were able to keep going. So it's going to sound like we were right in the middle of a conversation, which we were, uh, but I think you'll catch up pretty quickly as, uh, as Bob was able to uh, tell some of those uh, amazing stories, and uh, I think you'll agree that his mission is pretty incredible. So enjoy. Fantastic. Well, so when you when you come on board and you have those events, I mean, I, I saw that uh, when 42 was yeah. brought on, that that was something that, you know, Harrison Ford came in and you guys had those events. I mean, and that's great because, you know, Jackie Robinson was, you know, KC Monarch for a year before he went in. I mean, that was that was the whole thing. You transitioned to the Dodgers. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you and I have you here because that that was an event that brought people in and obviously brought a level of interest to it. But one of the stories that came out because you know, when something like that occurs, you've got documentary after documentary, you've got pundit after pundit that wants to talk about the movie and what it meant in that generation. And when you read about Jackie Robinson, a lot of what I hear is like he wasn't necessarily the best player in the league at the time, but he was the right man for the, the situation. Yeah. No, Going back just a little bit before I address that question, even though I didn't come back and inherit the greatest set of circumstances, mm -hmm. I'm not sure the timing could have been any better yeah. for me to come back. Gotcha. Because when I got back in 2011, I got to orchestrate a 100th birthday celebration for the late, great Buck O'Neill. Nice. A and people rallied around Buck because Buck still has great equity in our city and across the baseball spectrum. Mm -hmm. And then 2012, we hosted the All-Star Game. Yeah. here in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And outside of the activities that took place at, at the K, the Negro Leagues Museum was the star of the All-Star Game. We were very fortunate. We put together a great series of events. I was reflecting last week after the news of the great Frank Robinson passed away. Yep. Well, that Sunday of the All-Star Game, on our Field of Legends, we hosted a private brunch for some of our friends and donors, and they had an opportunity for, to be part of a sit-down discussion with Frank Robinson, the great Henry Aaron, and it was moderated by Hall of Famer Dave Winfield. Oh, good Lord. And so you can imagine, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sitting no, there just legend, legend, it legend. Was, and, 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 and Dave Winfield, who is part of the Hall of Fame fraternity, mm -hmm. but you could tell how much in awe he was of being there with Frank Robinson and Henry Aaron, because even though they're in the same fraternity, 
the respect that he has for what they had to do, which essentially created a pathway for him to play this game. Right. And I don't think that that was lost on him. And so the atmosphere was absolutely electric. And, and both both guys, Mr. Aaron and Mr. Robinson, you know, the people that handle their schedule say, well, you know, they're only going to be there and they're only going to have time to take maybe one or two questions. Man, it was 90 minutes later, uh-huh. and I had to <laughs> cut them off because when they started telling stories, it was just one after another. It was a magical moment, and, and of course, I got a chance to reflect back on that with the death of the great Frank Robinson, who was just outside the Negro Leagues, mm-hmm. and, and one of the first core group of African-American stars that did not come right. through the Negro Leagues, and Frank Robinson was great as a player as a groundbreaking manager, as you well know, mm-hmm. the first African-American manager in Major League Baseball history right. in 1975. He went on to be a, an executive in the game. So he did everything you could do in the game of baseball, and he did it extraordinarily well. And, and so, and then in 2013, mm-hmm. well, by happenstance, we get connected to this epic film, 42. Yeah. And I knew the film was coming out, and I was just hoping that there was some way that we could find a linkage because of what you talked about, the fact that Jackie Robinson's illustrious professional career began right here in Kansas City. And there's still so many at home that don't know it. So you can imagine how much of the baseball world has no idea that Robinson's career began in Kansas City with the great Kansas City Monarchs in 1945. And so you know, I'm just fishing around, really, trying to figure out how I could get us connected. Well, I find a connection at a local financial firm, Waddell and Reed. Oh, nice. I actually used to work as an advisor for them when I started my career. Well, Waddell (laughs) and Reed had an investment interest in legendary films, Mm -hmm. Thomas Tull's legendary films. And I just started calling randomly around (laughs) to people at Waddell and Reed. I knew a couple couple of people over there. And lo and behold, I connect. We start talking. They were like, man, we wanted to do something with the Negro Leagues Museum around this film. And Mm -hmm. the next thing I know, we are all collaborating on this big red carpet celebration. I think the second largest red carpet screening of the film, only behind Los Angeles. Right. But, you know, they do that in Los Angeles all the time. Hollywood, this is a norm. (laughs) But in Kansas City, we don't do this every day. (laughs) And, And so we put together this red carpet screening, as you mentioned earlier, Harrison Ford was here. Mm-hmm. Chadwick Boseman was here. Of course, Chad plays yep. Jackie Robinson and wonderfully so in the film. And the, the reporter, Wendell Smith, which was brilliantly played by Andre Holland. Mm-hmm. All three actors here in Kansas City for this red carpet celebration. We put this event on at the AMC Barry Woods Theater. It is, the, I mean, again, once again, the atmosphere is absolutely electric. And as I tell the story all the time, I'm from a little town in Georgia called Crawfordville, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And, and Crawfordville, Georgia ain't much bigger than your studio here. <laughs> 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 all of about 500 people. And so this oh, was man. my first red carpet affair. <laughs> and let me tell you, man, I milked the carpet for everything you could get oh, out absolutely. of it. Oh, I went <laughs> up the carpet. I came back down the carpet. <laughs> I went up the carpet again because I didn't know when I'm going to get back on the carpet. So now I wanted to make sure I soaked it all in. And, and we have a jersey and cap that hangs right now inside the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It was the actual jersey and cap, mm-hmm. Kansas City Monarch, 1945 road jersey and cap that Chad Bozeman wore in the film. 
they presented that to me on the red carpet. Wow. And then we went in and we had all the theaters that was booked. And if you spent so much money, Harrison Ford and Chad would come in and introduce the film. And nice. I've been doing events for a long time. That event sold out in record time. I've nice. never seen that happen. That's fantastic. And, and we were able to raise a considerable amount of money. The very next day, the film was released nationwide. Mm -hmm. And Chadwick and Harrison both came to the museum and did live satellite TV interviews from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And then I wow. got a chance to tour them through the museum. It was, again, a surreal moment for us. Uh, it raised the platform of the museum it energized a community around the museum, and it helped educate people about the fact that the story of Jackie Robinson just simply does not happen without Kansas City. Right. Yeah, so Kansas City and the Negro Leagues gave America arguably its greatest hero mm -hmm. in Jackie Robinson. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, the the man himself was, and he I thought Chadwick played him in an amazing way. I mean, just to bring out the the moments of anger, but the absolute ability to be completely humble and yeah. know that you're, you know, you're somebody that's going to be talked yeah. about forever. Absolutely. You know, you broke that barrier. And, and, you know, I often wonder if Jackie really grasped the magnitude mm -hmm. of what he was about to do. Yeah. You know, because I don't know if you could. No. Because, I, you know, I think he understood, obviously, that this was big because you're moving into a realm that had not been broached before. Right. And, but I don't know if he quite understood particularly how this was going to resonate in the African-American community. Yeah. See, Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier, man, was just like the first man landing on the moon yeah. for black folks. Mm -hmm. You know, this was exciting and had been long anticipated and waited on. Mm -hmm. I think mainstream media really got caught off guard. They didn't see this coming. Yeah. And, and the thing about it, and you touched on it a little bit earlier as we started to, to talk about Jackie, he wasn't the best player in the Negro Leagues. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not disparaging. It speaks more to the talent mm -hmm. that was there in the Negro Leagues. Because you have to keep in mind that Jackie Robinson was a five-sport star. I mean, sorry, a four-sport star at UCLA. He was a much better basketball, football, track athlete than he was baseball player. Yeah, yeah baseball was his weakest sport. <laughs> and he turns himself into a Hall of Fame yeah. caliber baseball player. Now, some say he was an even better tennis player. There was nothing that Jackie Robinson couldn't do. Right. But it speaks more to the fact that there were these Negro League veterans who were indeed far superior baseball players to Jackie at that time. Jackie turned himself into a great baseball player. These guys were already great baseball players. and But Jackie, as you touched upon, was absolutely the right man to be the first. Yeah. He had the intangibles that better prepared him to deal with the racial hatred that he would be confronted with. He had been a celebrated collegiate and all-American football player at UCLA. So he had a little cachet surrounding him. Yeah. So he's college educated. He had served in the military. He, would, he was disciplined. Mm -hmm. He would become married. He's stable. Mm -hmm. All those attributes would be called upon to deal with that racial hatred. You see, some of the other guys in the Negro Leagues who had been so acclimated to segregation, they couldn't handle it. Right. They couldn't handle the social aspect of this. Had you thrown a black cat on the field when Willie Wells walked out on the field, mm -hmm. his natural instinct would have been pick that black cat up, throw it right back where it came from. Mm -hmm. But then all the naysayers would have said, see, 
I told you they couldn't handle it. Right. Yeah, but if Jackie can't play, mm-hmm. the naysayers would have said the same thing. Can't See, handle it that. Yeah. I told you they weren't good enough to play in this league. Yeah. So Branch Rickey had a double difficult task of identifying the right guy because, as you can well imagine, failure is not an option on either side of the equation. No. Yeah, and it's – you think about, you know, all the horrible stories about people that, you know, even now go to an opposing – team and the things that they say I mean LSU you know I grew up out when Mizzou was in the Big 12 that's when I went to school there and when they transitioned to the SEC I remember one of the first stores like I can't wait for you guys to go to LSU because it's just an (laughs) incredible experience about how just crazy they are and what they say to you and it's like oh okay well that's going to be fun I think Tim Tebow in his book talked about that a lot too and uh but what I can't imagine is being somebody that, one, has to deal with that on the road and then come back home and have to hear the exact the same exact insults, thing. have Absolutely. to deal with that for your crowd. Yeah. And your teammates know it, too. And you know some of your teammates are thinking that, and your coach might think it, and your pl- you know, the other players are there. Everybody on that field either doesn't think you belong for, like you touched on, the, the color of your skin or the ability to play. Yeah. And I can't imagine being the person who has the weight of the world on you when you have not just yourself, but an entire community behind you that you have to you have to be the representative of yeah, and, and, and be hated and, the whole time. And, and everything about that is 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 really just confounded by the fact that the color of the skin was dictating both sides of this. Mm-hmm. You know, and but what I find and the late great Buck O'Neill used to say this so often, and, and of course, if you knew Buck, Buck was the most optimistic person I've ever met. He was the consummate glass half full kind of guy. Yeah. And he just wholeheartedly believed that the baseball fan, that real fan, Mm -hmm. did not care. Right. Yeah, all they cared was, can you play? Yeah. Yeah, the real fan didn't care. The people who came to boo Jackie and say those mean-spirited things to them, he surmised that many of them had never been to a baseball game before. They came expressly to spew hate. Right. And, And I think there's some legitimacy to that. Because what you saw was... After Jackie transitions and starts to have success, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it didn't matter what color he was. Right. Brooklyn was winning. And, and you know, and and I think the beautiful thing about our society, and you see this kind of of glowingly come through, Jackie Robinson comes in and has success in the major leagues. What did you see? You saw not only black kids in the playground saying, I'm Jackie Robinson. You saw white kids saying, I'm Jackie Robinson, because that white child didn't see a black man. That white child saw a baseball player that they wanted to emulate. Exactly. And that's the way it is supposed to be. And so he started to kind of create this groundswell of a movement that started to steer this country in the right direction. Yeah. And, And that's the beautiful thing about what Jackie was able to do in a game that, as you well know, is difficult to play under the best of circumstances, yeah. circumstances, no less trying to carry 21 million black folks on your back uh-huh. when you walk out there to play this game. Exactly. And I, one question I do have as well, and it ties into that because there's this amazing moment in history, you know, and it's so much bigger than baseball, where he comes in, he's great, they start winning, and people, like you said, they don't see the color of his skin anymore. It's just the player. And obviously there are evil people that did see it, but mm-hmm. you know, he moved past it eventually. But when he is introduced to Major League Baseball, the organization that your museum shows then 
starts to die. It yes. starts to decline. Yes. And so that's, it, to me, it, it's, it's an odd question to ask. It's bittersweet. But yeah, it's like, yeah. we're here. We did it. This is the right thing to yeah. do. And society has now progressed and we're a better people because of it. Yeah. But the, there's a reason that it's, you know, your museum is because it's gone. It's gone. Yeah. And so what, you know, and part of being gone means that some of the players don't have a place to go anymore. Exactly. A lot of them do exactly. because they're just as good, better, you yeah. know, than some of the others in the major leagues. But what did that, you know, especially with Buck's opinion, like what did that look like on the decline? Like some players are going in, they're hitting the majors, but now those big draws, they're not there anymore. They're, not go they're gone. Yeah. And, and there's no question that Jackie's breaking of the color barrier signaled the death knell yeah. for the Negro Leagues because the sentiment now was that you didn't need two professional leagues operating now at the same time as you did during that era of segregation. And so what happened was Major League Baseball started to siphon off all the great young talent. Mm -hmm. And they got the, the great stars from the Negro Leagues, and then the young, expiring ball player didn't need the Negro Leagues anymore either because now they could go into the Major Leagues minor league system yep. and earn their way to the big league. So it essentially put the Negro Leagues out of business. And as you touched on, a lot of players who were Major League caliber did not get that opportunity to transition. They were too old. Yeah. They were too old, so now they were forced to either go back to Canada or to Latin America if they were going to keep playing ball, or they would now have to move into the private sector like everybody else did right. You know, during that time. And not only the players, but the coaches, the managers, the traveling secretaries, the team physicians. Yeah, the whole business of the yeah, game. Yeah, the too. whole business of the game kind of got phased out. And so the thing that I think makes this, as I say, bittersweet is – the Negro Leagues had insurmountable impact mm -hmm. on African-American communities. So wherever you had successful black baseball, you had thriving black economies. Mm -hmm. And with the decline of the Negro Leagues, which absolutely ushered in integration in our society, mm -hmm. those smaller black businesses that had been mandated in many regards by segregation could no longer compete. Yeah. And they perished. And with them, many of those communities, 18th and Vine, where the museum operates, mm -hmm. is no exception. Yeah. It was once a very prominent African-American community. It was the epicenter mm -hmm. of black life in Kansas City. And like a lot of urban areas, it died. And you can directly trace the rise and fall of the Negro Leagues with the rise and fall of black economy. Mm -hmm. And so as I share with our visitors, when I'm giving the tour of the museum, man, there's always a cost for progress. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Always. And, and in this case, it was the economic aspect of it. Today, it's more technological in nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with each technological advancement, somebody loses their job. Yeah. That's the byproduct of progress. And for the Negro Leagues, it was very similar, but it was good, as you touched upon, for the soul of our country. Yeah. And it moved us in ways socially that I'm not sure we ever fathom was even possible. Mm -hmm. and, and so, but yeah, they, they're the black businesses and a lot of the older black players play, paid a dear price price mm -hmm. for that progress yeah which made satchel page kind of the the weird situation because he's he was 38 when he went he was <laughs> they say 42 42 they say 42 <laughs> and i preface the fact that they say 42 yeah. <laughs> when he gets to the big leagues in 1948 with the cleveland indians although 
he most who knew him says he was at least 10 years older than what he claimed to be. Yeah. So he was likely closer to 52 oh, than geez. he was 42, <laughs> and he was still winning at the big league level. Yeah. But see, none of the other owners, with the exception of Bill Vec, mm-hmm. would have ever given Satchel a chance. Mm-hmm. It would have been too easy for them to say, well, he's too old. Right. He's too old. And in many ways, he was too charismatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Major League Baseball frowned on that charismatic style that the Negro Leagues played. Right. Yeah, you know, they called it showboating. Yeah. No, as the late great Buck O'Neill said, when a guy would dive, dive in the hole, flip it behind his back to start the double play, they say, oh, they just showboating. But as Buck would say, it's only showboating when you can't do it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, so, <laughs> and so, in many regards, Satchel, Bill Vec was the only one that I think would have given Satchel a chance because the rest of the owners just were, were said, well, that's just Vec being Vec. Because, you know, he was so aloof and he would do these kinds of crazy things and, and they could just kind of just throw it on that that's just Vec being Vec. Yeah. I don't know if, if Mr. Vec knew that Satchel still had some gas in the tank mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. He knew he'd be a huge drawing card. Yeah. And he was. He was a huge gate attraction. He's always been a huge gate attraction. So yeah. there's no small wonder that that continued one by the time he gets to the major leagues because yeah. now there's even more curiosity about the old man because yeah. his reputation had preceded him. Yeah. He was filling up ballparks all over this country yeah, at that time. What was it? His first one was, I think, 70,000 people I mean, it packed was just to see him. ridiculous numbers <laughs> when he finally got his chance to start. Yeah. And uh, I, re- I remember a story of him playing... Uh, Maybe his second, third start was in Comiskey Park mm-hmm. in Chicago, South Side Chicago. They got 55,000 people in the ballpark. Field to capacity, they had to turn away another 12,000 that was trying to get in the ballpark to see the <laughs> old man pitch. He beats the White Sox 5 to nothing that day. Shut him out. Uh-huh. They go back to Cleveland, where Cleveland had this huge ballpark, mm-hmm. And they've got some, I don't know, 80,000, 90,000 people in the ballpark to see the old man pitch. He mm-hmm. shuts them out again, one to nothing. Mm-hmm. The legendary Larry Doby, who would break baseball's color barrier in the American League with Cleveland, drove in the winning run, and now the old man is off and running now. He was straight up dealing. You know, his 1942 season, for a guy, whether he was 42 or 52, he goes 6-1 and one with a 2.4 ERA. It's rookie season, you know, and this is not your average rookie. No. You know, whether it's 42 <laughs> or 52, he was absolutely amazing. And as I tell our guests all the time, there will never, ever, ever be another Leroy Satchel Page, not someone who combines the longevity mm-hmm. by his estimation, pitched in over 2,600 games. Yeah. The great stuff. Yeah. Recorded some 55 no-hitters and only God knows how many strikeouts and the charisma Mm-hmm. He could sell it. Yeah. yeah, he could sell it, but he could also back it up. Uh, the legendary Buck O'Neill says for his money, the three most charismatic athletes he ever saw were Satchel Page, Dizzy Dean, and the late, great Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't get more personality than Muhammad no, Ali. No. <laughs> <laughs> My dad was just infatuated growing up with Muhammad Ali. We had memorabilia everywhere. His buddy was the same way. I mean, we'd, you know, anytime Muhammad Ali would come in town, we always went down and we probably didn't ever stand in the 500 yard line that people were waiting to get everything <laughs> signed, but you could guarantee his friend would always be right there at the end of the line, like yeah. buying whatever somebody just got signed. Well, I was telling, I was telling <laughs> someone 
if Satchel was around in this day of social media, mm-hmm. he would likely be the biggest star on the face of the planet. Yeah. See, he had the he had the entire package. You know, there are always guys, you know, and you'll hear guys say, well, such and such threw as hard as Satchel or such and such was as good as Satchel. Mm-hmm. But when you become the measuring stick that everybody else is trying to measure up to, you must be pretty doggone good. Yeah. But see, what the other guys didn't have was the other stuff. Yeah. And Satchel had it, that charisma, that style, everything that you needed to be a star, yeah. Satchel had it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so there's no doubt he would be the biggest star on the face of the planet with social media. Yeah. When I'd read about him in the past, it was always interesting because I never, I honestly never saw the the personality part of it because at the time that I was reading it, I was concentrating on how he pitched. And it sounds like he had, like, he almost pitched like Patrick Mahomes throws a football. It was like one time he'd come <laughs> over the top, the other time he'd have a, you know, a, a sidearm, like, way low. And then they were talking about one that they ended up outlawing, so who knows how many strikeouts he would have gotten if he was able to incorporate They took the his pitch. hesitation pitch away. Yeah. And th- because they <laughs> called it a ball, but that, that pitch was not illegal. No. You know, but they took that pitch away from him yeah. when he gets to the major leagues. And, and you're right. See, but in his in his prime, mm-hmm. they clocked his fastball at 105 miles per hour. And they were playing in uh, they were playing in Washington DC. And Buck tells a great story. The Monarchs are playing the Homestead Grays and the the military had an old cruise speed tracking device that they used. <laughs> And they're clocking Satchel without Satchel being aware of them timing him. Mm-hmm. And so Buck says Satchel retires the side, and the kid from the military who's astounded comes over. Mr. Page, Mr. Page, we clocked your fastball at 105 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. Buck says Satchel looks at me and says, son, I wish I'd known you were timing me. <laughs> I could have thrown harder than that. <laughs> And there's that personality. <laughs> That's that personality. Uh-huh. But what made Satchel great, and I can tell you now, 105 is pretty special. Yeah. But what really made him special, the control. Yeah. The pinpoint control. He could put it exactly where he wanted to put it. And even as an old man, he never lost that. Mm-hmm. No, so we're not talking about just throwing strikes. Right. But the catcher set the target. He hit the target. He didn't miss. And I think that's what separates him from everybody else because he could identify the weakness in a batter and then he could hit that spot. Yeah. And as you're right, as he got older, he got crafty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he's up here yeah. at top. He dropped down three quarters. He dropped down submarine. But he's still throwing everything with pinpoint precision. Yeah. And so you may remember Charlie Finley. Charlie Finley owned the Kansas City A's before he moved him out to Oakland. Yeah, wasn't very popular in Kansas no, City. No, for a while. no, no. <laughs> but you know, love him or hate him, he was a masterful promoter. Absolutely. And, and so he brings Satchel back in 1965. Mm-hmm. Well, they are a perfect pair. They are marriage waiting to happen. Charlie Finley, one of the greatest promoters of all time. Satchel Page, one of the greatest self-promoters of uh-huh. all time. So <laughs> this is a marriage made in heaven. And so Finley brings him back in 1965. And Satchel pitches three innings against the Boston Red Sox, Mm -hmm. giving up only one hit in those three innings. Now, Satchel is supposed to be 59 at the time. Yeah, he gives up. He pitches three shutout innings, gave up only one hit. Great trivia question. Mm -hmm. 1965 Boston Red Sox. Who got that lone hit off of Satchel? He's a Hall of Famer, but it's not Ted Williams. Then my guess is gone. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Carl Yastrzemski, a really? young Yaz, mm -hmm. gets a double against the old man. Satchel leaves him at third, shut down everybody else over three of the most remarkably pitched innings ever. It never really got the credence that it deserved mm -hmm. because, again, it's Satchel Paige. Yeah. And Charlie Finley. Yeah. So, you know, people just kind of blew it off. But I had the, the privilege of being part of an interview with Rico Petroselli, who mm -hmm. does a serious XM baseball channel radio show every weekend. Gotcha. He was on that 65 Boston Red Sox team. And he told me, he says, Bob, we all went to the plate hacking away at that old man. They thought they were going to light this old dude up. Mm -hmm. And he says, at that time, Satchel's fastball is still 86, 87 miles an hour, and he's painting the black, and they're all going back to the dugout in utter disbelief mm -hmm. that they couldn't hit this old man. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is, you know, they're pissed off because they can't hit him. But on his side, you know, he's mad because he gave up the double. He's mad because he gave up that exactly. double. Exactly. <laughs> like, no wonder he pitched like that. He gave up a double. Like, know, oh, that's not happening but again. That's what tell him. said, you might as well get comfortable. You ain't going nowhere. Uh-uh. No, just stay in that box, buddy. And as soon as I'm done with you, go back and sit on the bench. Oh, man. I mean, players like that, it's it's interesting because everybody in this day and age has to do it. Like, when you think about even as late as, like, Trent Green or Joe Montana, like the 90s and early 2000s, you weren't – you didn't have the kind of self-promotion that you did. And the people that you did see the self-promotion from, you know, the person I think of at that, in that era is Deion Sanders. Everybody yeah. knew Deion had personality. Yes. He owned it. He yes. didn't apologize. You know, it wasn't like he, you know – uh, he did, you know, a dance on the way to the end zone, and he came back and was like, well, I shouldn't have done that. I was like, yeah, they should have caught me. Exactly. And it was great. Yeah. And now everything is about personality because yeah. you're on social media, exactly. because you have to do established brand, you have to do all of that. So somebody in that day and age, knowing the self-promotion skills, it's like we lost out on having that guy in this day and age when, he, like you said, he would have been the best at it. Yeah. He would have had the most followers, would have had the most oh, personality. No yeah. No and would have. Never apologized. No, and no, I no, no. He, he was he was unapologetically good. Yeah, and he was such a show. But that's why people, Satchel would ride into towns, and the entire town was shut down to mm -hmm. watch this man do his thing. Yeah, you know, and and that's why I think he enjoyed the barnstorming aspect of black baseball probably even more so than he did playing in the Negro Leagues, which was a lot more confining. Yeah. And, and I think that's why so many people across the country identified with not only Satchel, but a lot of the Negro League players, because you got to remember that Major League Baseball didn't do as much barnstorming as the Negro Leagues did. Right. And, and because their brand of baseball was basically isolated geographically to a select few communities, and that's where they operated. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Negro Leagues took that baseball all over the country, they took it into Canada. They were the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. Yeah. And as I tell people all the time, believe it or not, it was a touring team of Negro leaguers who introduced professional baseball to the Japanese going all the way back to 1927. I didn't know that. Man, that's <laughs> years before Ruth and his all-stars go over. Mm -hmm. Now, they've been commonly credited with having taken professional baseball to the Japanese, but it's not true. It was a team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants mm -hmm. who would visit Japan in 1927, play a 24-game exhibition series 
they go 23-0-1 on the tour. The tour was so <laughs> successful that several years later, Ruth and his All-Stars would make their way over. And that's one of the things that I talk about when people come to visit the museum. In many respects, the, a global game. This is a global game. Yeah. There are so many ethnicities that make up a major league roster on any given day. Well, at the heart of it were the Negro Leagues. They helped make the game the global game that it is. And, and it speaks to the perspective that the Negro Leagues had. Yeah. They didn't care what color you were. Mm -hmm. And they didn't care what gender you were. Can you play? Yeah. That's all that mattered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all that mattered to them. Can you play? And yeah. if you can play, you can play. Yeah. And it's interesting with, you know, the organization that you work with, you know, with the NLBM and everything that goes on around there, it's, you know, we were talking about this earlier, but have to hit on it again because it's it's got to be a very interesting balance because, again, you look back at that and you say, look what this organization did. And especially it seems like in this day and age when people are hypersensitive and we're, you know, anything that you say is just gone through with a fine-tooth comb, which is one of the terrifying things about social media that you can, you know, immediately be blacklisted by anybody just for saying the wrong thing yeah. one time. And in this day and age, you have the Negro League Baseball Museum, and you have the Negro Leagues, and you talk about all of the amazing things, all the amazing players they came out of, the community that would grow around where they were. And then you have to look at that and say, look at this amazing organization. It's like, well, but we weren't, we weren't good people back then. It's like, no, we weren't. But look where we are now, and that's because of that organization. That's yeah. because of those players. Yeah, and, and so I think it's something that you you have to understand what it was, but you have to look back with pride as well. Well, and and I think that's why the story is so compelling. Mm -hmm. It is so awe-inspiring because the Negro Leagues, in my opinion, embodies the American spirit, mm -hmm. unlike any in the annals of American history. Yeah. It is everything that America prides itself in being mm -hmm. because the story itself is about pride. It is about passion. It is about perseverance. It is about determination. It is about the refusal to accept the notion that you're unfit, so I'll show you. Yeah. Say, you won't let me play with you? I create a league of my own. Yeah. And now my league will rise to rival and in many cities across this great country of ours surpass Major League Baseball mm -hmm. in popularity and in attendance. And so even though America was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, it was the American spirit, however, yeah. that allowed them to persevere and prevail. And that comes out so triumphantly when you visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Mm -hmm. So yes, the backdrop is against segregation. Yeah. A horrible chapter in this country's history. But again, out of segregation rose this wonderful story of triumph and conquest. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what people grab. We almost de-emphasize the players. Yeah. Because I think for us it is a given that you're going to come there and you're going to meet some of the greatest baseball players to ever put on a baseball uniform. Mm -hmm. But by the time you walk away from that experience at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, I truly believe that you walk away with an even greater appreciation for how special this country really is. Yeah. This story could have only happened in America. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And when you do go to the museum, you're struck by you know the 18th and Vine District is so well-defined, and it's so, I mean, it's a beautiful area. The building's beautiful everywhere around it is. But like we were talking about earlier, or you were talking about earlier, 
when that went away, and you mm -hmm. had several things that happened. I was watching a documentary several years back. Um, I think it came out, Sly was still, was the mayor at the time. I think it was maybe 2016 or 2015, something like that. But there's a documentary I was watching, and I think it was called East of Troost on yes. YouTube. And um, they talk about it, and there was one thing that struck me that uh, one of the guys that they interviewed discussed, and he, they were asking him, like, why do you think that this area hollowed out? And he immediately gave the you know most confusing answer I'd ever heard, and he said <laughs> he said it was the end of segregation. Yeah. And you don't think that that would happen? It's like no, the end of segregation is a good thing. Why would we you know attribute hollowing out of a of an inner core to to that? It's like because everybody took their kids out of this area that could and moved to you know where they might think was a better yeah. school or they might think was a better house or better neighborhood, whatever it might be. And so when you did that, when you took away those individuals it hollowed things out and it's an unfortunate thing. Like you said, there's always a cost to progress. Absolutely. But you know, you drive on the East side, you know, now I guess it's more East side of 71 highway. Cause there's that truce, you know, to 71 yes. area, but on the East side of 71, you see that and yeah. there's, there's nothing. And it's unfortunate that that's the case, but 18th and vine is such a star in that because you have so many positive things right there. And I'm, that's again, why I'm, I'm glad that, um, the Negro League Baseball Museum is there is because well, it's a cultural center. And it was important for us to anchor at Historic 18th and Vine mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. Number one, the birth of the Negro Leagues took place right around the corner from where the museum operates, mm -hmm. the old Paseo YMCA. The building still stands, and we've designated the building, which is a historical landmark, as the future Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. Awesome. So the roots of the Negro Leagues began right there in the district. Mm -hmm. And it was important, and, and Buck really emphasized the fact that this is where we needed to build this museum. Right. And in doing so, we also bared the responsibility and started to shoulder the brunt of trying to revitalize a community at the same time. Mm -hmm. It is rare that a museum has to carry that burden uh, while it is in its own infancy, uh, the challenge of preserving and celebrating this history and building something from nothing alongside trying to help restore the luster to a community that had lost it. Yeah. And Buck was just adamant because there were others who wanted us to, to put the museum in an area that would generate high foot traffic. Mm -hmm. Probably would have been a better business model for mm -hmm. the museum, but he was just adamant that this is where the Negro Leagues began, this is where the Negro Leagues Museum needs to be, and yeah. this was against the well wishes of those who are friends of ours today. Yeah, yeah. and Buck just had that infinite wisdom, and we anchored there at Historic 18 Divine in 1990. We're entering our 29th season as an organization. We haven't looked back since, and we've seen some great things happen at 18th and Vine. People are living at 18th and Vine. We're excited about the prospect mm -hmm. for continued economic growth at 18th and Vine. We've got this beautiful Urban Youth Academy right behind the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, mm -hmm. the impending Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. You've got the Black Archives of Mid-America, the Mutual Musicians Foundation, Alvin Ailey's dance troupe set up there. The Zao Brothers are building mm -hmm. a cultural uh, institution there at the site of the old attic school. And so all of a sudden, you have this wonderful cultural campus, yeah. so to speak, that no other city in this country has. That dearth of cultural institutions 
in one centralized location. Mm -hmm. And that should be something that we hang our hat on. Yeah. It should be something that is wildly promoted because it is what separates Kansas City from so many other cities. And then you've got a Negro Leagues Museum and an American Jazz Museum to anchor all of that. Yeah. You know, and so I challenge anybody, tell me another city that has that degree of cultural institutions in one centralized two and a half, three block location mm -hmm. in this country. And, and so, yes, we want 18th and Vine to succeed. And you stop to think about 18th and Vine. 18th and Vine is where, it's probably the most authentic experience in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly the one that Kansas City hangs its hat on jazz and barbecue. Oh, yeah. Both of them originated at 18th and Vine. Right there, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's... To me, that area is such an important area, and it's, you know, I, I'm not, what, I guess, I, the question that I would have is, do you all work with the city to, like, help kind of move things around, work with them to, you know, like you were talking about, it's, and it seems like it's continued, which is a positive thing, to grow out from 18th and Vine directly. There are more things that seem like they're being built there, more investment that's coming in, but it's a slow growth model. Yeah, that's good. And... It's, that can be positive because it creates it organically. You're not just, you know, throwing up, you know, and this isn't to say anything negative, but throwing up a, a place like Power and Light and really hoping it works because if it doesn't, then it collapses. Now it's been great for the city because, like I said, growth has happened. But with 18 and Vine, it's not like somebody came in and went, we're going to put, you know, 25 million right here and see if it grows. It's, it's been organic. It's been people who care about that area who want to see that area succeed that have been, you know, investing in that. Yeah. You are directly responsible for a lot of that investment, yeah, not only for your museum, but there. We're right in the middle of it. And, and we take great pride in the fact that Buck's vision was right on. Mm -hmm. We've been able to build this institution known as the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and at the same time be that kind of catalyst for economic development there. It's been very successful on the housing side, the commercial side has been a lot slower than any of us would have mm -hmm. wanted, yeah. but I do feel very confident that the new plan will slowly but surely kind of get that commercial infusion in and we'll get that balance of residential and commercial that will allow the district to continue to grow and thrive. And we, we couldn't be more proud of the, our role in making that happen mm -hmm. because I honestly believe had the Negro Leagues Museum not anchored at 18th and Vine, yeah. I don't think you would see what we've seen there yeah. to this point. Totally agree. And you said new plan. Is that is there an actual like plan, master plan moving there, forward? There is. There okay. is. And the, and the city is working in great earnest to try and, and put together a plan that will create this, this new infusion. They've uh, voted on some resources to come to the district. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those dollars will help us complete the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. So we're doing a complete rehab of the building that the Negro Leagues were formed in oh, in 1920. Wow. Yeah. The same very building that Rube Foster organized the Negro Leagues in a meeting that took place at the old Paseo YMCA on February 13th, 1920, the Negro National Leagues were established. Mm -hmm. And they would become the first successful black baseball organization. Yeah, yeah and because there had been other attempts, but they had failed. Mm -hmm. But Rube Foster gave it the vision that it needed. Yeah. And so February 13th will mark the 99th anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues. And, and of course, on February 13th, a big announcement from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum regarding 
that anniversary date and an impending 100th birthday celebration in 2020. Yeah, I was going to ask you, there's not going to be anything big happening at the NLBM on, <laughs> on February 13th, 2020, is there? There's no plans to celebrate that. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing, though, to know that, you know, we're so close to that date on, for the 99th, and then to know that next year there's going to be a 100th anniversary of this thing, and that yeah. just brings more people in because from as far as baseball is concerned, it was amazing to me to watch, you know, the 2012 All-Star Game, I think, was a pivotal moment for the city because we got to host it. And that's amazing, and that's wonderful, and everybody has a lot of good memories from that, all the pictures, all the players that came in. But that really felt like the turning point for the team, too. So yeah, when the Royals yeah. started going up, going up, and yeah. then we made it 2014, yeah. made the playoffs, and then made yeah. that amazing run. 2015, we get the ring, and then 2016 is, is the last year with kind of that core group of yeah. players. Yeah. And it was a strange time because I grew up, like, my my sports, if you put them a few years back, you know, one through five, it'd be like, you know, Chiefs football, Mizzou football, Royals. And that'd be the, you know, one, two, and three. And then when that happened, it's like I saw this city that I would have assumed for the most part was painted red for the Chiefs. The Chiefs went down and down and down and kept going, and the Royals kept going up. And we not only went up, we had a fun group of people that we had did. personality. We did. And could sell themselves. And we won in different ways. And if you look at the, you know, the history of the Negro Leagues, it, there are quotes from that, and I can't remember who it was that said it, but it was like, Papa Coo Cool, cool Papa. Papa Bell. That's cool right. Papa Bell. He made a comment like, we we play, you know, it's a more fun brand of playing. We it steal was. bases. Yeah. You know, and people couldn't catch him getting to first. Yeah. And then it's like, well, he's on first, so he's yeah. probably going to score. Yeah. And that's how they, I mean, at least well, for the most part, not all, you know, not everybody in that league, but it was a very fun brand of baseball. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just. It was exciting. Yeah. It was exciting. And, you know, we talked about the success of 42, well, 2014. I'm concerned now because I'm worried about what national something that we're going to hang our hat and build programming <laughs> around. And But, you know, we were riding this great wave of momentum that had been built mm -hmm. up 11, 12, and 13. Yeah. And lo and behold, <laughs> our Royals get to the playoffs and win this miraculous playoff wild card game. Mm -hmm. And then they get on this crazy roll and get to the World Series. Yeah and all heck breaks loose <laughs> in a good way. Yeah. And it was great because it was the museum's first World Series as well. Yeah. And so, again, what it did was it brought the national and international spotlight to Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And so while they were in Kansas City over those games that were played here, they're looking for other baseball stuff. Yeah. We were that other baseball stuff. And you're right. The Royals in 14 and 15 were so much fun to watch. Yeah. Because they played a Negro League style of play, mm -hmm. move the line, yeah. move the line, yeah. you know, and, and that's and, and that's what made Negro League's baseball, as Buck would say, you couldn't go to the concession stand <laughs> because you might miss something that you had never seen. Yeah. And, and so their ability to obviously play great defense and to pitch the ball, but their ability to steal bases, mm -hmm. the daringness on the base paths. You know, the ability to drop a bunt down. And, and, and those things keep play moving. Yeah. And it keeps the fans interested. You know, what we saw in 2018 is not exciting baseball. No. No, no, no. What we saw was a game that had more strikeouts than base hits mm -hmm. for the first time in the history of our sport. Yeah. And 
that style, you know, to see Lorenzo Cain score from first against the Blue Jays oh, on a single. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Oh, that was or to see Hosma daring dash home, mm -hmm. you know, to win that game and, and, and win the game against the Mets. And, you know, that kind of play, man, they had you sitting on the edge of your seat. Yeah, they could hit home runs, a timely mm -hmm. home run here and there. And that was the way it was in the Negro Leagues. They had guys who could hit the ball out the ballpark. Yeah. But every one of those guys could steal your base. Yeah. Josh Gibson, one of the greatest power hitters of all time, could steal your 20, 25 bases from his catcher's position. Jeez. You know, that's the kind <laughs> of extraordinary athlete mm -hmm. that he was. But, see, you just have to have that. You have to have great athletes. We have a lot of really good baseball players. Yep. They're just that. The baseball players, they're well-trained. They lift a bunch of weights. They yep. look good in the uniform. Mm -hmm. But they, they can't run. Yep. No, they, they, they can't run. And, and see, the Royals had a team that could run. And what did it do? It permeated through the rest of the team. I mean, how joyous was it to see Billy Butler still in the base? Oh, that was you know? great. <laughs> I've never laughed so hard in my life. I was, and he owned it. Like, he again, he just was, stood that's up and was like, saying. I absolutely did that, that and you didn't expect yeah. it. <laughs> and, 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 and that's what I'm saying. And that kind of excitement just permeated mm -hmm. through all of the team. And so now everybody said, I can still a base. Now I can do this. Yeah. I can help my team win. You know, people call it small ball. We call it winning ball. Yeah. You know, because that, that's what it is. Yeah, and it gives you all the tools to win at any point in the game. Like, if you're constantly stealing bases, if you're dropping bunts, and that's how you're getting on base in the first inning, you can damn sure do it in the ninth. Yeah, when you absolutely you're putting have a to. lot of pressure on the team not to make mistakes. Exactly. Yeah, and that's what Rube Foster preached. Mm -hmm. Rube Foster preached that style of baseball. Matter of fact, he mandated that style of baseball. Rube Foster was known to fine his ball players as much as $5 if they were tagged out standing up. <laughs> you were supposed to slide. He'd draw a circle down the first baseline and a circle down the third baseline. And if every one of his guys couldn't drop a bunt mm -hmm. inside that circle, he would fine them. Yeah. And I tell <laughs> our guests all the time, $5 in the 1900s, uh -huh. that was a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're making you know, 12 to 20 bucks a game, it's like, oh, okay, I can't drop a bun. I guess I better learn that real fast. You better fast. learn in a hurry. Yeah. Well, and that shows you, I mean, like you were pointing to, you know, that shows you the level of athlete they had to be able to, you know, if you can do all of those things, I mean, uh, Ruben Foster, yeah. no, not um, Ruben Foster, who was the, J Josh Gibson? Gibson, yeah. big power hitter, but, yep. but it, see, but, Gibson, was, Gibson was built almost identical to Bo Jackson. Yeah. Almost identical. Big broad chest, big powerful forearms, big powerful thighs. Mm -hmm. But he's a great athlete. Gibson's six foot, six one, two fifteen, two twenty. As Buck said, neat in the waist. Yeah, yeah. I'm still trying to get neat in the waist. Yeah. I ain't there yet. <laughs> 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 well, yeah. But he and he steals all those bases. He's so fast. He's power hitter. And he's a catcher. He's a catcher. He's on his knee. Like, he's exactly. crouched all the time, and he just can exactly. walk and sprint to first. And he <laughs> caught his entire career in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, he caught his entire career. And you can, you can imagine the toll that that takes on your body mm -hmm. and, and because it's the most physically demanding position on the field. Yeah. Yeah, for those same reasons that you just talked mm -hmm. about. And, and he excelled in that position, and he dominated the game mm -hmm. as a catcher which is virtually unheard of, yeah. which is one of the reasons why I believe that Josh Gibson is the greatest baseball player to ever play this game. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
I mean, the, the comparison to Babe Ruth was like they called him the Black Babe Ruth, and a lot of people were like, no, he's... Ruth was white yeah, guy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because he was that good. I mean, you think about the catchers that we have in the game now, like Eric Molina, uh, Salvador Perez, obviously, Buster yeah. Posey. Like, you wouldn't expect any of those guys to be able to steal bases. I mean, Yadir... No. Possibly, no. but still, he, I mean, hitting, yes. Stealing bases, no. Salvi's never stealing a base. And, and that guy, he's got to be one of the most <laughs> physically strong people I know to be that, what, 6'5", and he's playing catcher? Yeah, <sighs> it, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a physical specimen. Yeah. He's a great guy. I love Salvi. And I had a chance to, to give him a tour of the Negro Leagues Museum yeah. uh, just before the last series in 2015, last home series in 2015 they were getting ready to get ready for the playoff and they were headed out to minnesota for that last road series and he came by the museum unannounced and i just happened to come back and he was there and i went down and we walked around and talked a little bit and obviously he's from venezuela mm -hmm. and so we talked a lot about the fact that josh gibson had played in venezuela and mm -hmm. talked about the incredible feats of gibson because <laughs> gibson not only hit for power he hit for average. Mm -hmm. He had a lifetime batting average of 354. Which is that's almost a, that's, impossible. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and against major leaguers in countless exhibition games, he hit over 420. Mm -hmm. So he combined <laughs> power and average with a great arm. He was a great catcher. He wasn't a good catcher. He was a great catcher. Mm -hmm. Strong, accurate, throwing arm. Buck said he had complete control of his pitching staff. And so he called a great game as mm -hmm. well. And so Salvi, like a lot of the young major leaguers who come to the museum, are just absolutely in awe. Yeah. And, and last summer, I tell the story, it's a funny story, the great Willie McGee, the Cardinals mm -hmm. speedster, who works now for the Cardinals as a coach, and Mike Cla Claiborne, who's the voice of the Cardinals, one of the radio uh, voices of the Cardinals, brought a group of young uh, players from the St. Louis Cardinals. They brought by uh, Jack Flaherty and Paul DeJong, and Harrison Bader. And so I'm giving them the tour of the museum, and we get to a place in the museum where there's this great photograph, mm -hmm. full-body photograph of Gibson, and they're all marveling at his bat position. Mm -hmm. And when you see Josh, Josh had these huge hands. He's got, he swung a 40-ounce, 41-inch <laughs> bat. <laughs> and, 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 and he's got that big bat gripped down below the knob. Now he's not above the knob. Uh -huh. He's down below the knob. Like, you know, yeah, just the pinky or like no, no, hold the, the 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 bottom hand. The whole hand is down below <laughs> the knob, and and they're watching the lines. And even in the photograph, mm -hmm. you can see the power. Yeah. yeah, you can see the power, and and they're marveling at the lines. And that weekend, if you recall that series when the Cardinals came to town. I mean, they just beat up on my home team, beat mm -hmm. up on my guys, and we could <laughs> not get Harrison Bader out. Yep. We couldn't get him out. I mm -hmm. mean, he was just burning the ball up, and I had to send him a note. I said, look, man, I told you about Josh Gibson. <laughs> I didn't want you to become Josh Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just a little unfair to come to our turf, CR, man. <laughs> and so I saw Mike Claiborne at the uh, baseball winter meetings out in Las Vegas earlier this year, and he says, Bob, they, the guys are still talking about the tour. They're still talking about the museum. And again, you know, athletes in general are superstitious. Yeah. And the success that they had mm -hmm. after coming to the museum, you can rest assured they'll be back this year. <laughs> <laughs> Just start getting tickets now. It's like next time they come in town, you guys have to let me know so I can use this, man. 
People got to meet you, even though you're <laughs> against us. People got to meet you. But you know, yeah. I enjoy I enjoy taking <laughs> young athletes through the museum. Yeah. I enjoy seeing their reaction to the story because they can't relate to what a segregated society was like. But what they do draw, I think, strength from is the passion and the love that these players from the Negro Leagues had for the game. Yeah. Because as I tell them, you had to love it in order to endure the things that they had to endure mm -hmm. just to play baseball in this country. It wasn't uncommon for these baseball players to fill up a ballpark. Yeah. Fill the ballpark up, but could not get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered them. Right. Or would not have a place to stay. Mm -hmm. So they would sleep on the bus and eat their peanut butter and crackers until they could get to a place that would offer basic services for them, but they would never allow that to kill their love of the game. Right. So if I got to sleep on the bus, eat my peanut butter and crackers, I'm going to keep playing ball. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's the prevailing spirit that drives the Negro Leagues Museum. And I think all of the young athletes identify with how tough this game is. Mm -hmm. And so some of the the managers and coaches will come in and say, yeah, my guys were crying about a late-night charter flight. Oh, a late-night <laughs> charter flight. And then they come into the museum and they hear these stories of the long bus rides and they see this beautiful quote from the legendary Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe who says every 4th of July they would play four games in one day. He would pitch to and catch to and sleep 35 minutes in between games. All of a sudden, that late night charter flight don't seem so bad anymore. Not at See, all. It, so it's all about perspective. And yeah. I think they gain a greater perspective yeah. of what they have. And I really believe a greater appreciation for what they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so, but they all love the game. I think sometimes as fans, we lament at the money that is made in this sport. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we mistakenly believe that they don't love the game. Yeah, they love the game. They're playing a game that they play for free. Yeah. They're playing a game that they played when they were a child. They would play that game for free if they weren't making money uh, in the sport today. So, yeah, no, they love the game. Mm -hmm. But as I share with them, you'll never see a greater example of love of the game than you do when you come to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Absolutely. When Gibson... Gibson passed pretty quickly after He was 35. Career. Yeah. Yeah, he was 35 when he died. He died the same year that Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier, 1947. And Gibson tragically dies suffering from a brain tumor, which ultimately caused a stroke. And he, he succumbed to that stroke on January 20th, 1947. He knew he had the brain tumor, mm -hmm. but he was afraid to have surgery because the fear of being left in a vegetative state Operating on the brain is tricky today, yeah. no less in the 1940s when you weren't necessarily privy to the best health care to begin with. Right. And so he refused to have the surgery and sadly dies at age 35. Very tragic ending to one of the greatest baseball players to ever play this game. Yeah. And do you think you know, he was 35, but he was so talented, he was so good. I mean, I would assume that he would have been, you know, even in the later stages of his career, he might have transitioned into major leagues. You know, it I mean, would have been interesting to see because yeah. he was just that good. Yeah. It would have been interesting to see because by baseball standards, Jackie Robinson was old. Mm -hmm. You know, he's 28 by the time he gets to, to Brooklyn. So he's old by baseball standards. And, and so it would have been interesting to see whether or not uh, a Gibson would have gotten an opportunity yeah. if he had not been ill 
you know, Clark Griffith, who owned the Washington Senators, had tinkered with the notion of signing both Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson gotcha. uh, when, the, when both were playing for the Homestead Grades, and they were playing in Griffith's Washington Senators Stadium. Mm-hmm. And he was watching them do incredible things. Yeah. He's watching Josh Gibson hit balls where no mere mortal had ever hit them. And, but they were also filling up the stadium with all these black fans. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so in the early 1940s, he wanted to sign Gibson and Leonard then, but he got scared. And I think he had this kind of double-edged sword thing. Mm-hmm. Because if I sign Josh and Buck Leonard, and if I put the Negro Leagues out of business, I've taken away a source of my revenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the Homestead Grays were outdrawing the Washington Senators. And so Griffith is getting <laughs> a percentage of the gate yeah. and in likelihood all of the concession. Mm-hmm. So it's that double entendre, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, because if I sign Gibson and Leonard, the Washington Senators now are a much better baseball team. Right. There's no, hands down. Uh-huh. Yeah, hands down. But, but on the other side, <laughs> I'm cutting off my other hand because uh-huh. <laughs> I'm making a lot of money off of this. Right. And, and plus, at that point in time, he knew he would be ostracized by his peers, mm-hmm. the other owners of the teams. Yeah. And, and so you had to question whether or not you wanted to even take that gamble. Yeah. And so fast forward to 45 when Ricky signs Robinson, well, we're coming out of World War II now. Mm-hmm. And World War II created that groundswell for integration in our sport. The sentiment was, if they could die for their fighting for their country, they ought to be able to play baseball in this country. Yeah. So the timing was right for Ricky and Happy Chandler to essentially orchestrate this move to bring Robinson in and break baseball's six-decade-long color barrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but when Clark Griffith, Griffith was thinking about it, it was still too early. Yeah. Yeah, so in, 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 in the final analysis, timing is everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what, I guess at that point in time, everybody's coming back. Jackie breaks the barrier. You've got all these amazing players. Are there stories from that period of time where owners like wanted to be Brooklyn? They wanted to be the first team to bring them in, but they were afraid of either fan re- like the repercussions of the fan base. They were afraid of losing money in that situation. I mean, were there – because to me, I look at it, 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 it reminds me there's so much about this movement that had reverberations in football decades later. And uh, Hank Stram and Vince Lombardi were two of the guys that, you know, they'd go down to Southern Black Colleges and they'd Absolutely. find Bobby Bell. Absolutely. You know, they'd find the best players down there and they'd bring them up to play football and everybody's yeah. looking at it, you know, and then 10 years later, everybody feels like an idiot that they weren't the first person to do mm-hmm. it. And so I understand the money aspect of, you know, him thinking like I can fill stadiums twice. Of course I'm going to do that. <laughs> but in every situation, there are people that are brave enough to take the first step. And there are the people that want to but don't have and that don't yet. Do it. Absolutely. And, and that's why you saw such a slow, meticulous process in the integration cycle mm-hmm. in our sport. In April, we're opening up a brand new permanent exhibition called Barrier Breakers. Mm-hmm. And Barrier Breakers will examine or chronicle the complete integration of the game of Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. You see, it took 12 years before every Major League team had at least 
one black baseball player. The Boston Red Sox become the last team to integrate in 1959 when they signed a guy named Elijah Pumpsy Green. Mm -hmm. And so that is what completes the integration cycle. The very next year, the Negro League ceased operations. Mm -hmm. But this was indeed a very slow, meticulous process. And so Brooklyn was so much more aggressive than most of the teams in baseball. And the National League was far more aggressive than the American League. Mm-hmm. And, and so, which probably explains why the National League, this polar shift, and why the National League started dominating all-star games. Yeah. Yeah, because it was far more aggressive in bringing these incredible black players over into its side. Yeah. And, and Boston completes the integration cycle in 1959. So the new exhibit will tell all of their stories. See, everybody knows Jackie's story. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and, and rightfully so. You know, just a few weeks later, Larry Doby breaks the color barrier in the American League. It's only been over the last decade that people have finally started to pay a little bit more attention Mm -hmm. to Larry Doby. And Larry Doby went through just as much, and you might even argue, even more than Jackie because he was playing in the American League. Right. And the American League wasn't nearly as liberal, and it it didn't have the major urban centers that the National League had. Mm -hmm. Jackie's playing in Brooklyn. The national media is following his every move. Larry Doby goes over to Cleveland. Ain't nobody paying him any attention. He's a 23-year-old player thrown into a powder keg of racism. Yeah. Uh And and yet he handled himself also with that same kind of grace, class, and dignity. And and so, but that's the way we are in our society. We always remember the first guy. Yeah. We never remember the second guy. And if you're number 16... You can pretty much forget it. And, and that's just kind of the way it is. So the new Barrier Breaker exhibit will chronicle all of their pioneering roles as they broke the color barrier with their respective major league teams. We call it Barrier Breakers from Jackie to Pumpsy. Mm-hmm. That will open April 13th at the Negro League Baseball Museum. And so it's there to remind us that it didn't get any easier for Pumpsy Green in Boston in 1959. Mm-hmm than it did for Jackie in 1947. So they all had their trials and tribulations as they were trying to carve out this pathway to success in Major League Baseball. And and we wanted to make sure that they are not, that they are more than just a footnote in in our sport. They should be remembered and celebrated too. Absolutely. And when you talk about, you know, those individuals and you talk about the Jackie story, I mean, the entire idea is that the Negro League Baseball Museum, the Negro Leagues, the integration of black players into Major Leagues, all of that is so much, it's bigger than baseball, it's it bigger is. than ev- like anything that you can think of in that scenario, it's bigger than everything outside of the idea that America progressed forward. Like yeah. that we as a people, yeah. as a nation and as a people, moved forward, we became better, and there is a, you know, it's going to sound like such a pun, but it, I mean, it's very black and white. You are either correct in what you're doing, or you're not, and we've got to be correct. So when people come into that museum and there's that start, like that reality that this happened, people went through this, it's a positive thing to look at how many great players played in this league. But they leave, it's like, it's gotta be a profound sense of what it means to be, you know, not only a baseball fan, but an American. Absolutely. And what do you, when somebody leaves and they say something, like what's the thing that puts a smile on your face when when somebody leaves and they say that to you, like, it, it, it really does, and, and the thing that I get more so than anything else is <laughs> a very simple phrase. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know. And, and, of course, you didn't know because you had no way to know. Yeah. 
this profound story of the Negro Leagues has never been documented in the pages of American history books. Mm -hmm. So countless generations of us go through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant yeah. chapters, not in baseball history, mm -hmm. but in American history. Right. And, and they all leave questioning. So I think what happens is you come in, you're amazed by what you learn, mm -hmm. but you're a little dismayed by the fact that I just now had a chance to learn this. Exactly. Why didn't I know this when I was in school? Mm -hmm. And the answer is quite simple. American historians did us all a tremendous disservice. Mm -hmm. They kept this wonderful chapter of baseball and Americana away from us. Yeah. And, and we as Americans don't typically appreciate the fact that somebody tried to arbitrarily decide what you and I get to know. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's why, to a person, people come out of that museum. And yeah, you're cheering the power of the human spirit because that's mm -hmm. what is that's why yeah. we couch it as a celebration. You are literally cheering the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. But you've now walked away with some new knowledge. It's a brand new history for the virtually all of the people who come to see us. And again, I hope the work that we've done over the last 29 years of helping elevate the consciousness of people, not only in this country, but around the globe yeah. to the role that the Negro Leagues played, the very vital, important role that the Negro Leagues played. But at, the, at its crux, this is a civil rights story. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. it's a civil rights story. It's as much a civil rights story as it is a baseball story. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's amazing to me that you know you have you know we've talked about them almost constantly on this but you know you've got the story of Jackie that's the moment that's the moment that you can point to and say that's when it broke like that's when it broke through that's when we but the story yeah. is the negro leagues yeah i mean it really yeah. is it's it's and it's what drives our museum and and i tell people all the time and my dear friends over at that hollow hall known as the national baseball hall of fame mm -hmm. in cooperstown new york is a wonderful edifice and it's a great place if you like stuff. Yep. Yeah, you can see as much stuff as you want to see. It's not the stuff that drives the Negro Leagues Museum. We try and acquire as much as we can to accent and bring the story to life. Mm -hmm. It is the story that drives this museum. And it is a story that had escaped the pages of American history books. A and to me, that is what people come and leave with... With utter amazement. Yeah. Yeah, because you are shaking your head. I can't believe I didn't know this. Yeah. And that's people, a lot of them from Kansas City that uh, don't oh, know. Oh, uh, absolutely. And so people from around the nation, like, how could you know? We're, there is a, you know, a large population of people that are ridiculously proud to have that museum in our town. We're ridiculously proud that it's in Kansas yeah. City. But if you're from Seattle, if you're from Portland, if you're from New York, you might not even know it exists. And that, to me, is, like you said, it's a tragedy because well, you and, need to know. And I, and I think it magnifies why the work that we are doing is so critical. Yeah. You know, because I talk about it all the time. I would love for everybody across this great nation of ours, as well as around the globe, to come visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. But we know that's not possible. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes incumbent upon us as a museum to make sure that we're able to take the story out on the road. We don't want this story to be isolated in Kansas City. Right. 
Yeah, it's isolation that has kind of led to the fact that people didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we don't want it to be isolated in Kansas City. So what we what did we start to do? We started to build traveling exhibitions. Yeah, and we started to use our staff and as resources. So we're getting out talking about this story, and we're trying to relate other cities and help them identify with their black baseball history. And and it's just important that we do that. And I hope in the process we whet your appetite to the point that you want to come and experience the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, that you will plan your travels to come and experience the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. But, you know, it was very important that we create access. I don't think there was ever a time that people didn't want to know about the Negro Leagues. They just simply had no way to know right. about the Negro Leagues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so where where do you meet the Negro League Baseball Museum? What's what's your story leading up to that? And like how do you how do you get to the position that you're in now where you're president of it? I, I started as a volunteer. I okay. started, believe it or not, I started as a volunteer in nineteen ninety three. I was working for the Kansas City Star at that time and I was working in the Star's promotions department, which functioned as its in-house advertising agency. And so I drew the assignment of promoting the museum's first traveling exhibition, mm-hmm. debuted in the storefront space where Bayou on the Vine restaurant is today. Mm-hmm. And we had some success with this traveling exhibition called Discover Greatness. It is still touring the country today. And the month of August, over 10,000 people came to see that exhibition down to 18th and Vine when there was nothing at 18th and Vine but the Lincoln Building in which we had that office where mm-hmm. we had this exhibit on display. And the success of that promotion at prompted the officials there to ask me if I would join their board of directors, which I did in a volunteer capacity. And I was doing a lot of the marketing, community relations, promotional stuff for the museum as a volunteer board member. And then in 1998, I stepped off the board to become the museum's first director of marketing Mm -hmm. and began a union with that museum that has been just an absolute incredible journey. In 2010, I left for about 13 months to go run another organization called the National Sports Center for the Disabled. Mm -hmm. They had a Kansas City office here and I became the executive director. But then in April 2011, I came right back 13 <laughs> months later. I was right back there, right back at home, uh, serving as president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So it's been an incredible journey for me and my affiliation with the museum to go from volunteer to now trying to run the place. And, and of course, in between times, I got the opportunity to meet the legendary Buck O'Neill. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, w- once you were bitten by the buck bug. <laughs> it was a wrap, man. You just wanted to be on Buck's team. Yeah. And I was so blessed and so fortunate to have traveled the country hanging out with Buck O'Neill. Yeah. They paid me to hang out with Buck O'Neill. Now, they didn't pay me much, but they paid uh-huh. me nevertheless <laughs> to hang out with Buck O'Neill, something that I would have done for absolutely nothing. Yeah. He was so captivating and he was so gregarious and so magnanimous in his personality and the energy level, the charisma, Mm -hmm. everything that went along with it. And as you could well imagine, he was a marketing man's dream come true. Oh, yeah. No, all you you had to do was just tee it up. Mm -hmm. You tee it up, Buck was going to hit it out the park. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and so, uh, but, you know, I don't know outside of my parents and my brother Fred if anybody had more influence over me than Buck. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I learned so much from him. 
And many of the stories that I now share on seemingly a daily basis at the Negro Leagues Museum or when I have opportunities to do what we're doing now, sitting down and chatting uh, like this, are stories that he related to Mm -hmm. me. And I got them firsthand. And so every time that I tell one of those stories, I feel like I'm keeping him alive in both my mind and in my heart. And I hope that we do the work that we're supposed to do so that Buck's Museum never dies. And I think that's what he wanted. He wanted a place where they would not be forgotten, Mm -hmm. that what they were able to accomplish in the face of tremendous social adversity would be remembered and not only be remembered, but be utilized in a transcending fashion Mm -hmm to help educate, but also inspire others. And and that's what it's all about. And and so it's a labor of love for all of us involved, but particularly for me. And every day that I go in there is not a day that goes by that I don't think about my friend Buck O'Neill. And I want to make sure that I do everything in my power, humanly possible, to make his museum successful. And I know the team there at the Negro Leagues Museum carries that same spirit. Uh, Our board of directors all carry that same spirit of wanting to make sure that those athletes who played in this league are never forgotten and that what they accomplished and how it can be utilized to influence and impact the lives of others as we move forward. And so, yeah, but that's how my affiliation began with the museum. And so almost from its inception, the museum was established in 1990. I got involved in 1993 and and really haven't looked back since. That's great. Yeah. The the story of Buck O'Neill is an amazing one, but the thing that I always take away isn't necessarily his his story up front. It's whenever somebody mentions his name, when they show the Buck O'Neill legacy seat in, in Kauffman Stadium and all that, I always remember the fact that I don't think I saw the man not smile. The, there's one picture I found of him in when he was in the Negro Leagues where he's they kind of got him from the side. Yeah, and he's not yeah. smiling. I went, they finally got it. <laughs> the first picture I've ever seen of him that they didn't oh. have a big he didn't have a big smile on his face. I'm sure he could get there just yeah. like everybody else, you know, but his a, public face. He was an intense competitor. Yeah, yeah he wanted to win. And uh, George Altman, who played for him with the Monarchs and then would go on and play, have a successful major league career with the Cubs. He also played for the Cardinals. He played for the Mets. And then he would go over to Japan and have a tremendous rebirth in his career in Japan. And he still says today that Buck O'Neill was the greatest manager he ever played for because he knew how to motivate men. Mm -hmm. He knew when to push. He knew when to let off. He knew when to kick him in the rump. He knew when to put his arms over his shoulders. Mm-hmm. You know, he instilled a sense of belief that made you believe you could do anything. Yeah. And, and they wanted to play for Buck. And he knew the game. Yeah. He knew the game inside out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a great tactician. You know, he knew how to motivate people. And, and, and George still says to this day, that Buck is the greatest manager he ever played for. He could still hear his voice. That's yeah, that beautiful baritone uh-huh. voice. Yeah, you know that just kind of <laughs> radiated. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. And so, what does the future hold for the organization? I mean, obviously, 2020 is going to be a very small year. You know, not going to do anything then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 2020, 2020 is big. You know, we're excited about this year, which is the 100th 
birthday year of Jackie Robinson. Yeah. Jackie would have turned 100 in January, January 31st. And so this is an exciting next two years for the museum. So activities throughout the year for Jackie's 100th, along with all the other things that we do during the course of the year, but really putting together some, uh, what we hope will be some winning plans for a major year-long 2020 celebration that will be national in scope. Yeah. Uh, that will start in February of 2020 with a groundbreaking art exhibition. Mm -hmm. uh, some amazing works by an artist named Greg, uh, Craig Krenler. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's just absolutely breathtaking work. Uh, some 200 plus pieces that will be featured here that will open in February of 2020. And then a culminating event in November uh, in and around what would have been Buck O'Neill's 109th birthday uh, to end the year. And so in between, there will be a lot of other activities, mm -hmm. programs, events that we'll do along the way. And what the museum doesn't currently have is an endowment. Yeah. And most museums start with an endowment already in place. Mm -hmm. I'm so fond of saying that we started with a hope and a prayer. Yeah. And But we've been able to succeed without having that endowment. But it is time now that this organization is prepared for perpetuity. Yeah. And in order to do that, you have to grow an endowment. And so we will hopefully be able to use 2020 as a springboard mm -hmm. to create this long-needed, uh, long-awaited endowment for our organization, whatever whatever that amount may be. Yeah. You know, we'll all sit down and try and analyze and determine what the funding community may hold for us in terms of a financial goal mm -hmm. to set. But I think that is the next important next step yep. for the museum. And I think for me, as I start to kind of, you know, wind down in my own time span of working with the museum and I want to make sure that I leave it better than the way that I found it. Right. Yeah. And whoever might subsequently come in after me. Now, I ain't going nowhere no time soon. <laughs> but whoever may come in subsequently after me will have a, have a handle on something that they can put their focus into some other areas and not just having to worry about funding and whether or not the organization will be able to exist you know, from one year to the next. Right. And, and so we want to make sure that that is, is a possibility. And so it's a it's an important time. But, man, what better opportunity than a 100th anniversary? And I can tell exactly. you now, every not-for-profit organization is looking for an anniversary that we can hang our hat on. Heck, yeah. Man, we'll create an anniversary. Uh -huh. Yeah, we'll create an anniversary. It could be the 37th anniversary of something. Exactly. You know, it will be like, 37? But <laughs> it's like when they say the 83rd Annual Academy Awards. Like, that part wasn't really necessary. Maybe but, 85, but come on, but man. But a 100-year is truly a milestone yeah. anniversary. And... and Understanding the monumental nature of what that meeting that took place on February night, February 13, 1920, mm -hmm. the ramifications that would come from that meeting are so significant. Yeah. And it's our opportunity, in many respects, to stick out our chest mm -hmm. and, and trumpet this story. Yeah, and help people understand the significance of the story in a greater capacity. Mm -hmm. And like I said, hopefully along the way, raise some considerable resources in support of this great museum and to kind of set it up. Yeah, for operations and uh, for for perpetuity. Yeah, 
Yeah. So if somebody's listening to this and they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I how do I help the museum as far as volunteering, obviously money donations, things of this Absolutely. nature. Absolutely. What um what what would you tell them? Well, you certainly can can call me at any time at eight one six two two one nineteen twenty. But you can also log in uh, online at nlbm.com. There'll be volunteer opportunities. There will be places that you can pledge your support financially mm -hmm. to the organization. Uh, so many, many opportunities there. And if nothing else, come and visit the Negro Lakes Museum. Come and if you're outside Kansas City, make plans to come see it. If you're at home, move it up on your list. Yeah, yeah, move it on, move it up on your list, and then just and finally do it because I think a lot of people intend to come. And they never get around to it. And right. I understand it because that's the way we are. Mm -hmm. Rarely are we tourists in our own city. Right. But we go somewhere else and we pay good money for that exact same experience. Mm -hmm. But we don't do it at home because sometimes we take for granted that these things are there. We know they're there yep. and that we will eventually get to them. We can do them anytime and then we never do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We need our locals to come and experience what people from around the globe are ranting and raving about. Yeah. Yeah, we want you to understand how special this museum is. And so, and we need that support from locals as well. And I'm very happy with the number of people who are coming in outside of Kansas City on an annual basis to experience the museum. But if we really want to move that needle forward, mm -hmm. we need more local participation. And so I hope we'll see more people, you know, not say like they do in New York, I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. Right. You know, and that happens. They see it every day and never mm -hmm. been. Yeah. You know, and I'll so. I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> I'll do it tomorrow. So we hope that we can motivate people to, to move us up to the top of the list of yeah. things that they want to do, you know, during the course of this summer or this spring, this summer, uh, particularly while we're in the middle of a, what we hope will be a great baseball season. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, and I mean, the 18th and Vine District. Go find it. Go enjoy it. It's Absolutely. an amazing, amazing, ex amazing experience. So, man, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you coming out here, telling me all these stories. I hope maybe we can have you on again sometime. We can share even more stories. But uh, well, we got a lot of stories to share, <laughs> a lot of stories to tell. And so, <laughs> no, we. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for having me, and and, and we appreciate.